Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 75, Islamic History, year 622, the Hijra, part one, the Great Escape. We are in the year 622, which is the year of the Hijra. And one of the more stunning and strange aspects about this part of Muslim history is just how restrained the enemies of Islam seem to be at this point in time. That's not to say that horrible things hadn't happened. They had. But because of these tribal codes and the desire to avoid blood feuds and a set of rules that was quite extraordinarily effective at keeping that particular society together, some Muslims actually lived in Mecca after Muhammad had basically joined another city, committed treason, pretty much. And one reason for this, and this is the time I'm talking about right now in the year 622. Now, one reason for their relative safety was that many of these Muslims still had family members and tribal chiefs who were willing to offer them protection, the protection of the tribe. And this included Muhammad, actually, if you may remember, he was still under the protection of Mutam ibn Adi, who was one of the Meccan chiefs. Funny enough, not of his clan, but of a different clan, but his protector nonetheless. We went over that in an earlier episode. And this situation through a modern lens just looks really, really strange because you have a tribe you know, in a city that's very good at commerce, these were capitalists, and yet they just weren't terribly ruthless people. Uh, Muhammad, they should have known, I think most of them did know, that he was an existential threat to them. And yet he was almost inhabiting some kind of weird nether zone, some weird loophole, a neutral zone in Meccan society that kept him alive. I mean, Usually, when you know someone is planning to betray you, you do something about it, right? Something big, something decisive. But the thing is, they didn't. Muhammad remained in the city. So did many prominent Muslims. And in retrospect, this seems completely insane. You know, from our vantage point all these years later. But I think the main concern in Mecca still even at this point, was ultimately preventing a civil war between the clans. So, no killing protected people. I don't really know if the Quraysh were just overly cautious people, or perhaps soft from a certain angle. You know, they were more of a prestige clan than a warrior one, than, you know, those types of clans that you're about to see in Medina a little later on. You know, for the Quraysh, their honor and legitimacy were tied mostly to non-military things, like the Kaaba. Maybe there was just some denial in many of them. But regardless of how or why it happened, it really was a perfect storm of complacency from the Meccans that gave the Muslims still in Mecca just enough breathing room to make it out alive. 
so I want to characterize the situation of the Muslims in Mecca at the time. And here's how I tend to think of this period of time. It's almost like the Muslims were in a POW camp. The POW is prisoner of war. That's a POW. I'm not sure that's general knowledge. It is over here, but this uh, podcast has a stunningly global audience, and I thank you for that. But it really was that type of a situation. You know, you had people who were in a sort of prison, surrounded by armed men with complete power over you. And despite the fact that you were draining the resources of these people, and the fact that they know that for certain, <laughs> if you had the chance, you would cut their throats if you ever got the opportunity. They know this, and yet they don't kill you. So in this situation, the prisoners know just how much they can actually push, you know, lest they get shot or tortured or whatever. Now, to clarify, I'm not talking about a POW camp in, say, Vietnam or World War II Japan. I'm talking about a Geneva Convention following power, a place where the rules are, for the most part, respected. You know, if you ever saw the movie The Great Escape, this is that kind of situation. That movie perfectly displays the tension of the final days of Muhammad's people before the Hijra, when they were stuck in Mecca. You know, think of it as a Luftwaffe prison camp. Of course, that's impossible. You know, that's important. This wasn't like um, one of the genocide camps run by the Gestapo or worse or some awful people. This was a standard military prison camp run by the Luftwaffe. You know, for the most part, uh, the Nazis didn't have a whole lot of say until, of course, the end when they did. But that's in the movie. You'll have to watch to see how that happens. But anyway, the tension between, say, the Luftwaffe officers and the prison personnel and the prisoners, it's very similar. You can think of the tribal chiefs and the power players in Mecca as being similar to the prison guards and uh, the Luftwaffe, you know, general staff and all that. And both the guards and the prisoners knew that there is a far more lethal force not very far away. For those prisoners in the German camp, that powerful force they wanted to avoid was the Gestapo and the more ruthless elements of the Nazi regime. And for our situation in Arabia, for the Muslims, it was the threat. Oh, I'm sorry, for the, uh, for, yes, for the Muslims, the problem was the threat of the United Tribes of Mecca deciding, you know what? We've had it with the Muslims. That's it. We've reached our breaking point. We're getting rid of all of you. And just as the prisoners in the Great Escape pushed a bit too hard, and the Germans did indeed finally take the gloves off, the same would happen with the Muslims. Now, I want to run with that analogy, right? So the Muslims are in a POW camp. And when you were a soldier, in a prisoner of war camp, what is your primary duty? It's actually not to lay low and, you know, not give them trouble. It's to escape, to hinder the enemy any way you can. But primarily, if you can, escape so that you can contribute to the war once more. Now, how do you escape? You escape quietly 
and at night and without anyone seeing you. <laughs> and this is precisely what the Muslims ended up doing. They left Mecca a few people at a time, in the night, unannounced. Almost all of them, but uh, there was one major exception to them, and that was Umar. Because um, Umar didn't have to hide from anybody. Umar was a huge, giant guy, and most people were afraid of him. So he just said, uh, you know what, I'm leaving. <laughs> he just declared he was leaving. And he dared anyone to stop him. It's a good thing they didn't have guns back then. <laughs> because isn't it interesting to think of how important physical stature used to be in the ancient world? Physical height, prowess. I mean, it still is. Tall people are still preferred pretty much in every aspect of life, particularly men. They earn more money. They're better regarded for some weird reason and all that. It's one of the few prejudices that's still widely acceptable, at least in my part of the world. But the invention of the gun pretty much leveled the playing field for all men in terms of lethality. In our day, one little guy with a gun can kill 10 giant men without a gun. Way more if he has a good military-grade rifle and some training. But that wasn't the case in ancient Arabia. So Omar, big guy, you know, big enough that even a couple of arrows probably wouldn't save you. He'd be able to come and kill you before, uh, before he died. So Umar, this big guy, he just walked off. Unfortunately, very few had that option. You know, the guards, they still had a great deal of power. And there were a few unfortunate people who ended up running afoul of these prison guards. There was Hisham, who was basically imprisoned by his family. And the family, apparently, according to the story, made him renounce Islam. And one man named Ayash actually made it to Medina with his cousin Umar, who I just talked about earlier. Unfortunately, he was persuaded by his half-brothers, uh, someone named Harith and the notorious Abu Jal. He was persuaded to come back to see his mother. So what they told him was basically his mother, according to them, was making very dangerous threats to herself. She was going crazy. And she was just going to basically kill herself unless she saw Ayash again. So they persuade him to leave. And of course, they ambushed him on the way, tied him up and carried him into the city, telling the other people that this is what you should do to your Muslim relatives. Uh, you know, there's no blood feud if you just merely imprison someone instead of kill them. Ayash was also persuaded to recant, perhaps under torture. Now, luckily for these unfortunate people, in the end, all was forgiven in this situation. Seriously, um, by God himself, according to the Quran, Because this situation actually did make it into the Quran, Surah 39, verse 53. Say, O prophet, that Allah says, O my servants who have exceeded the limits against their souls, do not lose hope in Allah's mercy, for Allah certainly forgives all sins. He is indeed the all-forgiving, most merciful. So those two men, they recanted their recantation. They became Muslims again. But... 
that didn't actually change their physical situation because they were still prisoners. Now, luckily for them, one of the Muslims managed to sneak into the city, free them, and bring them to Medina. So continually, the Muslims left, one by one, until there were only three left in the city. And it was a very, very big three. Muhammad, Abu Bakr, and Ali. All the others were gone, and it was having a noticeable effect on the city, which had a large number of clearly abandoned houses. The amount of Muslims that left was small, kind of by our standards. It was a few hundred people. And again, that seems like a small number. But Mecca, when I describe it as a city, it wasn't really all that big to begin with. Probably at just a few thousand people. And it was a city by the standards of that time and that place. And that's something to keep in mind moving forward. Especially in the early battles we see. Because these battles, they're barely even armies <laughs> competing in these. These are tiny, tiny numbers. In a modern army, they'd probably be called a company, these armies going at each other. Maybe two companies, but these are just very, very small numbers by modern standards. So, like I said, the big three were left in Mecca. Now, of course, they weren't really the only Muslims left in Mecca. You know, there were secret Muslims, there were slave Muslims, there were families of Muslims. I actually believe the, the families of all these three were still there. Um, but for the purposes of storytelling, you know, the, the, big, the big players, you know, particularly as far as the Meccan authorities were concerned, there were three Muslims left in Mecca. Muhammad, Abu Bakr, and Ali. Now, this big three, this group was probably going to leave soon anyway, but something ended up giving their mission some extra urgency because right <laughs> at this point in time, at this extremely vulnerable position, Mutam, Muhammad's protector, he died. So here we go again. Muhammad is hung out to dry because a tribal chief died again, just as he had been three years ago with the death of his uncle. Muhammad was without protection once more, and this time the Quraysh finally got serious. The leaders of all the tribes got together to discuss the Muhammad question and to come up with a solution. All the leaders met with the exception of Abu Lahab, so the Banu Hashim. Abu Lahab was the head of the Banu Hashim. Muhammad's clan would not be represented at this meeting. Led by Abu Jal, the consensus became that only one solution remained for the Islamic question. They decided it was time, at last, to just kill Muhammad. Regardless of how the Banu Hashim may feel about it, this was just getting way out of hand. It was just time to kill him and let the chips fall where they may. And this group of leaders came up with a plan. And there were two critical aspects of this plan, politically speaking at least. The first 
was the idea that the Banu Hashim would accept blood money for the death of Muhammad. At least they hoped so. Muhammad didn't have that much support among his own tribe anyway, so they thought this was probably doable. You know, whatever money it is, we'll just pay it, it'll be done, and that's the end. And two, in the unlikely event that the Banu Hashim would not accept blood money for the murder, you know, wanting to start a war or whatever, they needed a united front of all the other tribes, meaning all of the other tribes would have to be implicated in Muhammad's death. And basically say, hey, we all did it, you Banu Hashim. Are you going to come against all of us, really? Because they knew, probably, <laughs> that the Banu Hashim would not go to war with every single tribe because that would be suicide. Therefore, someone from each tribe would have to stab Muhammad. They would all have to do it together so that they shared the blame. It would end up being very much like the famous murder of Julius Caesar by a number of Roman senators. Had the plan succeeded, really, that's kind of what it would have looked like. But as we all know, obviously, that didn't happen. Muhammad was fine. And how did that happen? Muhammad, the story goes, got a heads up from Gabriel, telling that him, you know what, it's time to go. So with this warning, the remaining Muslims hatched a counter plan. Now, again, like I said, at least that's the story. But first, I think we should step back for a second and think about just how extraordinary this moment is, or was, how pivotal this moment really was in Muslim history, in world history, just think how things could have been very, very different in a million different ways right at this time when only three Muslims are left in Mecca. The Meccans are so worried about all these Muslims heading to Medina, but the big three, they were still there, perhaps trying to cover everyone's safe exit. And I do think that's why, actually. I think that that part is true, you know, but no one ever really tells you the mechanics of how Muhammad and his closest crew were actually covering everyone's exit. It was pretty brilliant when you think about it. Because all the effort that went into this migration, all the danger, all the agreements, you know, everything, and yet without the person of Muhammad and his two chief lieutenants as well, Ali and Abu Bakr, this whole thing, this migration, maybe even the religion, it would completely just fizzle out. It would mean nothing. It would just be a hundred people with new addresses, you know. So, I'm sure Muhammad understood this. Why is he risking that happening? Does he not realize how important he is to this whole thing? You know, isn't it horribly irresponsible for Muhammad to actually be in Mecca right now? Well, the reason Muhammad was risking it all like this is because he had to. Because if he wasn't in Mecca, his people would have never gotten away in the first place. Muhammad knows he's the head of this religion, and killing him could end the threat to Mecca. This seems obvious. 
But what is less obvious is that the tribal leaders of Mecca know that as well. So what ended up happening is with Muhammad staying, the threat never registered in a primal, immediate way. As long as Muhammad was there, and they theoretically had this option to kill him and snuff out the religion, you know, they still had uh, the nuclear option in modern parlance. As long as they could do this, as long as they could just pull the plug on this whole Muslim thing, if they really, really needed to, and deal with the fallout afterward, you know, the, the Islamic threat just didn't register to the level of <laughs> extinction. You know, it was just a little bit below that. Just by his presence in Mecca, Muhammad was able to keep the threat perception of the Meccans, like I said, just below existential, just below that line, just low enough that not enough people would freak out completely as his people trickled out of the city. Basically, Muhammad was using himself as a human shield for his people. But now, now was the end game. Only three Muslims left in the city. Like I said, not really. You know, there are some who never made the migration and slaves and not to mention the families of those who are still there. But three prominent Muslims were left in the city. And at this point, the, Me the Meccans, they went to DEFCON 1. Right to DEFCON 1. Now, I'm not going to assume everyone knows that reference. In America, DEFCON 1 basically means super high alert because a nuclear war is imminent. You know, that's the footing of the military in their cave in Colorado saying, okay, DEFCON 1, it's imminent. Time to just unleash everything. This is that time for the Quraysh. This is where the Quraysh are at now. DEFCON 1. So... They talk solutions. In some early versions of these meetings, <laughs> you know, spoiler alert, I know I already told you that, uh, you know, they decided to kill Muhammad. But this is going back to sort of the mechanics of that meeting and the stories surrounding that meeting, the, the details of it. Now, in this meeting, in some early versions, remember, this is all the tribes except Muhammad's tribe. In some early versions of this, the devil is actually one of the people in the discussion. Now, really, they had four options. One, they could let Muhammad go and take their chances, see what happens. This was dismissed. A second option was pondered. They could imprison him and make him sort of a hostage against any aggression from Medina in the future. Big problem with that is what if he escaped or he was freed by a sympathizer in Mecca? There were plenty of secret Muslims still in Mecca. So they went to a third option, basically a banishment. They would banish him from Mecca and the surrounding areas. But really, this was pretty dumb. <laughs> What's that going to do? He has legs. He can come back. He can go to Medina. He can go wherever. So Abu Jal suggests the final solution, the fourth option. Like I told you earlier, Muhammad would have to be killed. But like I said earlier, God gave a warning to Muhammad through Gabriel. 
it was kind of like the warning that God gave to Joseph and Mary before Herod went on his child-killing spree. You know, he received a warning from Gabriel that, hey, this was happening. Now, I probably should have mentioned that, according to many stories, Muhammad was not only in Mecca for strategic reasons. You know, that's the more historical, cynical view of it. But according to Islamic history, God actually hadn't given him permission to leave yet. That's why he was still there. Um, it really is that simple. It's not as interesting as speculating on the real politique of the situation, you know, the strategic reasons for what Muhammad was doing. But in the later telling, it actually became that simple. God hadn't said he can go, so he didn't go. He stayed there. Well, now, through Gabriel, he had his permission to leave. God said, all right, Muhammad, good work, time to go. Muhammad decides to leave with Abu Bakr, and funny enough, he would actually leave Ali behind to settle old debts and make sure anything's still in the house, you know, that didn't fully belong to him, to make sure that it was returned. And I really, really just love that detail. I mean, how wild is that if it's true? I can't believe he was thinking that way at a time like that. And that's probably part of what made him so unique. You know, and that Ali would actually do it. And he had to assume he was in some pretty major danger, you know, as, um, as sort of civilized as these people would be. And ultimately, you know, they were interested in killing Muhammad and not Ali. But if that were me, I would be like, uh, no, Muhammad, you're wrong. God does not care about these things. He wants me to actually be alive. But he didn't. And the theme here is very clear. These were men who trusted God totally and completely. You know, just like the early apostles, they completely trusted God. You know, they, they were entering battle in the Old Testament style now. God as your general and chief strategist and director of intelligence. So that night, the same night Muhammad got this warning, the uh, plotters, the murderers, um, the mob, <laughs> uh, they decided to sneak into Muhammad's house and kill him. Muhammad was still there with Ali, and the plotters were going to climb the wall. This was the plan. They were going to climb the wall, break in, and every one of them would kill Muhammad. Keep in mind, like I said, Ali was not the target. This is important later. And the wall at this point really was the key barrier. So just to give you an idea of what this would look like, this wasn't a house with a door, like a modern house. It only had a curtain on the front door. So once they got over the wall, they had easy access to the entire place, which of course wasn't even that big to begin with. But as the story goes, the assassins heard the voices of women and not wanting to dishonor themselves and also understanding the historical weight of this moment, <laughs> they decided to wait. The idea here is they didn't want to walk in on any nude women and go down in history as the men who did that because they know that this story is going to be told for a long time. 
So with the weight of history on their backs, so to speak, they decided to wait until Muhammad came out, as he often did, in the very early morning. So they would just wait there all night, and they would kill him when he came out. At some point, Muhammad became aware that these people were out there. I don't know how, but um, you know, this person did have an angel as his head scout, so he probably knew everything that was happening. However it happened, he knows they're out there. Muhammad said a prayer, uh, and it was answered. And God took away the sight of Muhammad's enemies briefly. And in this moment, Muhammad snuck out. Now, a while later, Muhammad actually ran into an acquaintance, you know, down the road as he was escaping. And that same person would eventually walk past Muhammad's house. And he saw all those men there outside. Of course, he didn't know about the plot. So he just thought, well, they must be looking for Muhammad. So he told them, hey, if you're looking for Muhammad, he's not home. I just saw him over there. So these people were obviously a bit confused. So one of the men peered over the fence and into a window. And he saw a person sleeping who he thought was Muhammad because he was in his sort of trademark cloak that they recognized as Muhammad's cloak. So they decided to stay there. What they didn't know was that Ali had been told to sleep in Muhammad's coat. And when he came out, they realized they had been fooled and they sounded the alarm, letting the town know that Muhammad was indeed gone. Now, one major missing part of this story, historically, is what they did when they finally saw Ali. You know, I'm sure they were surprised. And um, I always think of Ali just kind of springing up when he felt them around him. Because, I mean, surely he wasn't sleeping. No one could possibly sleep in a situation like that. But when they finally realized, oh, it is Ali, and they got all these weapons on him, you know... Why didn't they just kill Ali or take him as a hostage or do something? But they didn't. And we never really get an explanation for this. It could just be that in the moment, they just didn't care about Ali. They were focusing on the task at hand. They were too busy panicking and about to run all over the desert and turn over every rock looking for Muhammad. So... Ali just didn't really rate in their mind. He wasn't important enough. Or maybe it was an Arab tribal thing. You know, it's really hard to know what the ancient rules were in that society at that time regarding every little thing. There's just too much distance between our culture and theirs. I'm pretty sure Ali was still considered to be part of the Banu Hashim clan. And if they had killed him, it would have been a giant bloody mess from a tribal standpoint. So why bother? But that's not really part of the story. I never see it included, never have, mostly because it's just not that important. And, uh, you know, again, why should they care about Ali? Muhammad was the important person. And with the loss of Muhammad, going back to the metaphor that I started with, the prison camp of Mecca was now nearly empty. And now, 
their prize, their former prisoner, the general of the opposing army, had just walked out of the prison camp in the dead of the night. Muhammad, their most valuable prisoner of war, had escaped. And they had better find him really quick because this was kind of like Napoleon escaping from the island of Elba back in the day. This was not just an escaped prisoner who was going to go back and be a soldier or even the escape of an important prisoner or the escape of a dangerous prisoner. This was way, way more than that. This was an escapee who, if he were to get away, could come back in command of thousands of armed men. Just like Napoleon, Muhammad had an army waiting for him. He just had to reach it first. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.